One year on from making his debut in Formula One, Michael Schumacher became a winner for the first time at the iconic Spa-Francorchamps circuit. It was unquestionably one of 1992's more exciting races, with Spa's typical changeable weather and the sort of quick thinking that became a Schumacher trademark proving key to victory. But this was also a memorable weekend off track, with chaos breaking out in the driver market as Nigel Mansell, Ayrton Senna and Alain Prost were battling it out for the chance to race for the dominant Williams team in 1993. Joining me, Glenn Freeman, for this episode of Bring Back V10s are Ed Straw, and I'm delighted to welcome experienced F1 journalist and author David Tremaine to the show for the first time. Now, David, thanks so much for coming along to give us your first-hand insight and memories from this time in F1. Now, we always start off with the same opening question on Bring Back V10s. So firstly, when you think back to the 1992 Belgian Grand Prix weekend, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me. Um, I'm also delighted that I am still capable of remembering some of this. Funnily enough, um, I mean, obviously I remember it as Michael's first win, but I also remember it as the race, I one of the two races I think should really have been Martin Brundle's first victory. I know that sounds odd, but we can get into that in a minute. But those are my two sort of primary memories of that. Yeah, yeah, I think I know... When we get to it, we'll go into what the other race was as well. Because I think from what I've seen from Martin, um, there was another strong one slightly earlier in the year. But Ed, good to have you with us again. You know the drill with the opening question, of course. And I assume you have some sort of LaRousse or Fondmetal anecdote for us. Well, yeah, LaRousse is a great story in 92 because, of course, they parted company with Lola and they built the first true LaRousse, which, of course, wasn't called a LaRousse. It was a Venturi because Venturi had bought into the team. They pulled out later in the season, all sorts of ownership shenanigans going on there. Brilliant stories, uh, LaRousse. Obviously, we're going to save that for the, the standalone LaRousse special Bring Back V10's episode we'll do in the future. So I won't go into that too much now. Yeah, I've promised you a standalone Roos special if uh, if Bring Back V10s uh, wins the motorsports category at the Sports Podcast Awards that we've been nominated for. So if you're listening to this and you're a big fan of the show and you want to help us try to, to win an award, check out my Twitter feed at Freeman 39 and you'll see how you can vote for the show and give us some support. But talking of support, let's get a few review shout outs in before we get going. Thank you to everyone who leaves us a five star review on Apple Podcasts. I promise you I make sure to read them all and I do take note of all your brilliant episode suggestions as well. So keep those coming. Thank you to Duncan M33, Snorkly Pigs, Moaning Moaning Mansell, which is apt for today, and POT. Thank you for emailing us because you couldn't submit a review. Make sure you get your questions in about anything to do with F1 from the V10 era from 1989 to 2005 for our series finale episodes. You can submit them using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter or you can email BringBackV10s at the-race.com. And if you want to get early access to ad-free versions of the show plus bonus content between series, check out the Race Members Club. To find out more about all the other benefits you can get and to sign up, head to the-race.com forward slash members club. We're going to go straight in on the biggest story that was raging in F1 at the time of the 92 Belgian Grand Prix. And I make no apologies for how long we're going to spend digging into this because there was a lot to untangle. Heading into this race weekend, Williams had the three biggest names in the driver market. 
Nigel Mansell, Ayrton Senna and Alain Prost all vying for a drive with the team for 1993, or so it seemed. As it turned out, Prost had been signed since early in the season, but that hadn't got out until now. Prost said in his book that we so often quote on Bring Back V10s, when it became clear that nothing could happen with Williams for 92, I said that maybe we could think about 93. That led to a lot of discussion with Renault and Elf and Frank. We agreed on making something happen around the time the 92 season started. Interestingly, Adrian Newey called this decision questionable in his book, saying it was made even more so in light of the fact that Nigel had then gone on to win the championship. To be fair to Frank, he was doing his thinking when he had no idea Nigel would be so well suited to the active car or that he was about to reach a late peak as a driver. It's easy to look back now and wince at the idea of that change. Mansell said plenty on this in his 1990s autobiography that we'll get to in a moment, but in an interview with Motorsport magazine in 2009, he said he felt Williams was under pressure from Renault and Elf to get Prost in. But David, Adrian Newey raises an interesting discussion point there. Did Williams really need to sign Alain Prost for 93? I was wincing, as you said, um, that was a winceable thing. I'm surprised, actually. I, I don't think I entirely agree that Frank wasn't sure about Nigel, because, come on, Nigel had been always quick in everything he ever drove. We all know about his various shortcomings, but we also know what a fantastic driver he was and how every time he got in a car, he wanted to drive the wheels off it. And he did a great job in the FW14, and he could well have been world champion in 91 if it had been slightly more reliable, or if he hadn't fallen off in Suzuka. So uh, I'm not sure I agree with that, but I can see that Renault and Elf would have been extremely interested in getting Alan back. Um, I don't think anyone would have expected Nigel to be quite so upset um, in some ways. And I think that's probably the thing that really tripped everyone up. I think it made sense to go after Alan. I mean, Ferrari completely squandered him. He'd been great at McLaren. Why wouldn't Williams want him? And I can see Frank thinking, well, if you know, Frank always liked having two drivers of the same caliber, didn't he? So I can see if he's available, why wouldn't you get him? But of course, as we know, that then derailed Nigel, didn't it? And I don't think it's a surprise that Nigel won the world championship in 92 by any standards. I don't think it's a surprise he dominated it. And it wasn't just because he had the best car. I mean, he scored nearly double the points of anyone else. So he obviously made fantastic use of it. The point David made about the Elf and Renault, the sort of French interest is quite an important one in terms of where Williams was at this point. Because at a time when Formula One was getting bigger and bigger and bigger, Williams still had a slightly older fashion model, shall we say, and that it was the technical partners that were pretty critical to the team financially. And actually, this becomes more and more relevant down the line with Williams with it with its decline. So it's interesting that as well as always this constant search for better drivers that Williams seemed to have, that there was this commercial aspect that Frank Williams had to be very, very cognizant of in this period that was kind of independent purely of the, of the driver choice. Shows how important that was to him. I think it's also worth mentioning, you're absolutely right, Ed, as I understand it, Elf wasn't very struck on paying more money for Nigel, and that was one of the stumbling blocks. Renault, however, as we'll get to, 
was prepared to pay whatever it took, as I recall from uh, Monza that year and talking to people. So they were definitely, they wanted the best, the very best they could get. Yeah, as I think everybody knows who remembers this from the time, this story did run on to a spectacular conclusion at Monza. We won't drift into that bit too much just because we will do Monza 92 another time and this will be one of the biggest stories. But we will explain how we got there and you'll see all the building blocks are in place for it to go horribly wrong. The situation we had by Spa was further complicated given that in Hungary it had been revealed that Senna was willing to drive for Williams for free. This was revealed on the BBC TV coverage by commentator James Hunt and Senna followed it up by chasing Frank Williams and Patrick Head through the paddock when they were trying to leave the circuit on Sunday night. Speaking in Malcolm Folly's book Senna vs Prost, Frank said, We were trying to get a quick ride out when in front of everybody, Ayrton is running after me, shouting, I want to talk to you. Stop, stop, stop. He pursued Patrick and me, telling us he wanted to drive my car. I was astonished, but that was Ayrton, wasn't it? Senna faced a problem, though, as Prost had got it written into his contract that he could veto Senna joining the team. Prost said in his book that this was the only demand he made of joining Williams, adding, I want to compete against Ayrton. I have no problem about that, but not in the same team. I want to fight on the track. Mansell claimed in his book that Prost tried to veto him as well, but Williams hadn't agreed to that and Prost relented. And Prost has always said in interviews since that he was okay with being Mansell's teammate again after they'd spent a fairly tense year alongside each other at Ferrari in 1990. So Ed, given everything that had gone on between Prost and Senna just a few years earlier at McLaren and then into 90 when Prost wasn't even in the same garage anymore, was this request from Alan fair enough? I think it's completely understandable in his position. It's easy to be a bit reductive and say, oh, it's all about the fact he feared Senna's speed. Maybe there was a small amount about that, but it was far more complicated than that. Obviously, Senna had also made himself the focal point of McLaren and Honda in Prost's mind when they were teammates before. So I think he was also concerned about him becoming the kind of secondary driver. So I don't really blame him, given the, given the history there. And I think if you've got a driver who has a stipulation that it's pretty much any teammate except that one. Okay, there was a bit of dispute about Mansell, perhaps. I think that's fair enough. And let's face it, it would have been complete madness for Williams to have paired Prost and Senna together, wouldn't it? That would have been a a ludicrous (laughs) strategy for them to do. And I can't in the slightest blame Prost for looking at that and saying, look, if Senna's in, I'm absolutely not interested. He'd already had more than enough success. He didn't need the fourth world championship that much that he was willing to go back into that situation again. Would have been good to watch though, wouldn't it? But Senna Prost was never going to happen. Mansell Prost seemed like it would. So why didn't Williams end up with Mansell Prost as its 93 driver lineup? Before Spa, Mansell had spoken to the media about his world championship win and suggested his future would be Williams or retirement from F1. And Nigel said, the decision is not mine. I want to defend the championship. If that opportunity is not afforded me, I will consider retiring because even more today than before, I am not here to make the numbers up. Mansell and Williams had been in talks for most of the season with deals being agreed at various stages. We'll come back to some of that in a little while, but for now, let's focus on what went on between Hungary and Belgium. Mansell said in his book that he was devastated when he learned that Prost was already signed 
but he said he'd agree to deal with Frank Williams over the Hungary weekend, which included equal number one status and an additional $1.5 million in compensation. Mansell said Frank promised him the contract would be sent to his home on the Monday after the Hungary race. When that contract didn't arrive, Mansell says he called Frank saying, you're not messing me around, are you? And he was assured it was all in hand. Two days later, Mansell got a call from Sheridan Thin at Williams, who had been who said he'd been instructed by Frank to offer a new deal worth half of the amount agreed in Hungary. And Williams claimed it had Senna standing by in Paris, waiting to sign if Mansell wasn't interested. Mansell said he was utterly flabbergasted and very angry, and he responded by saying, if you want Senna, sign him. Obviously, we know Senna wasn't in Paris, and it wasn't long after this that Mansell found out Prost had vetoed Senna anyway. Speaking in the Senna versus Prost book, Frank Williams said Mansell's demands for 1992 were outrageous, and he said the team was fed up of spending such a big part of its budget, half of which came from Renault and Elf at this time, on drivers rather than car development or saving it for a rainy day or to be more profitable. However, Frank also admitted we had already signed Prost and that made retaining Nigel less than a priority. Mansell tried not to say too much about this at Spa, although he ended the weekend by declaring, I've never been so amazed at the shenanigans that are going on in all my life and my career as a Formula One driver. So David, you were there at Spa in 92. By the time this circus rolls into the paddock, what did you make of everything that was going on? Well, one of the things was that around Barcelona time, Frank was said to have offered Nigel 12 to 13 million pounds. And Nigel had gone away to think about it and that he'd won the world championship. But by then, it said that the offer on the table had gone down to 11. Then, of course, Ayrton came in with his thing. Um, one of two of the things that really annoyed Frank, and it sounds silly, but two of the things that really annoyed him was Nigel was demanding two motorhomes in the paddock for his own use and four to five hotel bedrooms. Now, Frank clearly balked, certainly at the, the bedrooms thing, um, and said two hotel bedrooms. But then, of course, as soon as Ayrton came out with that comment about driving for free, as I understand it, by Spa, the offer in mid-September, um, which uh, that was around Monza time, but it was down to 5.5 million. So clearly the whole thing was off the rails by then. I can understand why I would have been upset if I'd been Nigel. And it's like, you know, Damon <clears throat> won the world championship in 96, but had already been replaced by Frentzen which was kind of questionable anyway. But you can understand why they would have taken the opportunity to get Alan. Um, I think it's kind of sad they didn't mention it to Nigel sooner. Um, but equally, I know Patrick wasn't very happy that um, the way Nigel talked about the car. You know, many, many times Nigel was saying how difficult it was to drive and blah, blah, blah. And then you watch him on TV and it looked so much easier to drive than at all of the other cars on board just because of the active suspension and it was a little bit like the Jochen Rint a monkey could have won in that car type type thing and I think that upset a lot of people at Williams that 
Nigel never seemed to give the car the credit. It was usually a fantastic drive that he put in and got. They were so lucky that he'd managed to get to the flag first. I think that kind of thing really began to irk Williams in general as the season progressed. Yeah, and it's an interesting point that uh, sacrificing Mansell for Prost isn't quite the same as sacrificing world champion Damon Hill for uh, for Frentzen. Mansell talked a lot about this Spa weekend in his book. He said, by the time we got to Spa, the press had fully caught wind of the situation and rumours ran around the paddock. Frank and I had not spoken for a while and stories appeared in the press that I was being greedy and stalling the negotiations and that I was being difficult. Although I was prepared to say publicly that I felt I was being treated poorly, I didn't want to go into details. It wasn't the money, it was the principle that mattered. I couldn't understand why the goalpost kept moving. I felt a strong sense of rejection. The signal I was getting from Frank was that he didn't care whether I drove for him or not. Bernie Eccleston was working behind the scenes to patch things up, fearful he might lose the world champion. Bernie promised me that if I went ahead and signed the contract, he would personally ensure that my position was not undermined. It was a kind offer, but there was more at stake than money or status. I had said all along that I didn't want to be anywhere I wasn't wanted. I wanted to defend the title in the same way in which I had won it, which was surely my right after working so hard to get to this point. Now, David mentioned Patrick Head's perspective on this just then. So before we go any further, let's hear a little bit more of the Williams side of this story. In our last series, I spoke to Patrick about Mansell's return to Williams for four races in 1994. And unprompted in that conversation, Patrick went into telling the story of negotiating with Mansell in 92. Some of you may remember hearing that clip from that episode, but let's hear the relevant part of it again now. The Nigel's departure in 1992 wasn't really ideal because Nigel's request early in the year was to get his contract for 93 and 94 signed early in the year. And at a test at Silverstone, Frank had uh, sent the motorhome up there. And I think uh, we had a meeting with Nigel myself and, and Frank with Nigel, shook hands on a deal for 93 and 94. Uh, that deal was drawn up by the lawyer, the finances were all agreed, and that was sent off to Nigel, who I think at that time was living in the Isle of Man. And then we heard nothing back. Week, week went by, week went by, and during those weeks, of course, Nigel was winning race after race after race, in the active ride 1992 car, which was an active version of the 91 car. And um, I think Frank had sent a few messages saying, can we have the signed contract back? Um, and it didn't appear. And then Nigel suddenly decided he wanted a lot more money. Um, I wasn't very impressed, quite honestly. My impression was that we'd done a deal, shook hands on the deal, and the, that agreement was not chased by us, it was chased by Nigel. So he probably thinks we treated him badly, but the truth was the other way, way round, really. Patrick also told that story on a recent episode of F1's Beyond the Grid podcast with Tom Clarkson, where he added that Williams felt a few people got in Nigel's ear and told him he was worth more than the deal that was on the table for 1993. 
So, Ed, given Mansell was now the world champion by this point, was he entitled to take a firm position on this and not let Williams, in his eyes, mess him around? Or does Patrick's version of the story actually weaken Nigel's argument? There's a little bit of everything in this, isn't there? It's so difficult to untangle what actually happened with these sorts of contract negotiations. Yeah, what Patrick had said does suggest that Mansell was moving the goalposts. But at the same time, Patrick Head was relying only on the negotiations he was involved in. And we know Frank Williams was the guy who majored on this kind of thing. And I'm sure there would have been a lot going on that Patrick Head didn't necessarily need know about because he didn't need to know about it. He was focusing on the engineering side. But I think what we get is a picture of the sort of two sides moving apart in that you've got Mansell feeling, well, I've won the world championship. I deserve to have a pay rise and get all this and have these hotel rooms and all these other absurd things. Sometimes they argue for these extra things in their in their contracts almost as a status thing, isn't it? It's like, right, we've agreed this. Now let's see. See if I can get that fifth hotel room just because I want to win the negotiation. It's a certain way of uh, of doing things. But of course Frank Williams was trying to push him down. So given what happened with Williams throughout the nineties pretty much with drivers, I certainly think there's something in what Mansell says. I certainly think that there's something in the Williams side, which is that maybe Mansell did agree some terms, but until you get a contract signed, it's not signed, is it? The negotiation is ongoing, and it's very easy to say, oh, we had this deal, we had that deal. It's like, well, you didn't, because you didn't have it properly agreed and, and signed. And, you know, a handshake deal, people's interpretations of handshake deals can differ an enormous amount. So, yeah, I understand why Mansell felt as a dominating driver. He deserved greater recognition, and I'm sure all the stuff going on with Prost and the Senna stuff would have, would have fed into that. The one little footnote that I think is a real shame is that wouldn't a Mansell-Prost pairing in 93 have been fascinating? Considering the extent to which Prost coasted to the championship in 93, he'd have had to access a lot more of his of his ability to take on Mansell. That would have been a hell of a fight. I don't think it's a foregone conclusion it would have gone Prost's way, given what happened at, at Ferrari, where Prost got the initiative. I think that's a great lost opportunity there. And maybe Mansell might think that's a lost opportunity as well to be a, a double world champion. But yeah, yet another one of those great bring-back V10s, what, what could have been. Once Senna knew he'd been vetoed by Prost, he wasted little time in telling the world about it at Spa. And he added that being locked out of Williams almost certainly meant he wouldn't race in F1 in 1993. Senna said at Spa, As of today, I won't be driving next year. After trying for some time to put together a deal, and I honestly believe that Williams and Renault want to put it together, I've learned that I won't be able to. Prost simply doesn't want to compete with me in the same car, maybe because he knows that it's tough to beat me in the same car and he has to have a different one. That is sad because considering that Williams is so far technically ahead, it means I have no alternative way of competing against Prost in another car. If I was in the same car, then we would have a fantastic championship like we had in 88 and 89, a big fight. I certainly would like to have the opportunity to see how good I could be next year competing with Prost again. Things could be turned upside down and I have no hurry, but as of today, I won't be driving. Now, David, I imagine you were probably there and witnessed Ayrton making these declarations in the paddock. Was was this a bit of an overreaction from Ayrton? Well, the one thing we need to remember, of course, is that Honda were pulling out at the end of that year. <clears throat> and the way things were going at the time, as I recall, the Benetton obviously had the works Ford engines. And... 
initial discussions with Ford, Cosworth, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and McLaren were not um, as positive as they might have been. So I could, you know, Ayrton could see that not only would he not be in a V12 plowed McLaren, but he might be in something that was a lot worse. As it turned out, um, the 93 McLaren was actually an excellent car, as we saw, but um, it still wasn't a match for the Williams. So, uh, yeah, I mean, if you remember also, Ayrton tested an Indy car at the end of that year. So a lot of it was kind of bluffing. Um, I think one thing that's very well worth mentioning was this was the year in which technology was so important in Formula One in 92. And heading to 93, it was expected to be even more so. So Frank had a good point when he was saying about, you know, you don't want to spend a fortune on drivers um, at the expense of the investment in engineering. But that was exactly what McLaren was feeling as well. And I remember having a cup of tea with Frank in 1996. And it was quite interesting. It was illuminating how much he respected Ron's ability to look into the future. And he felt that Ron could look five years ahead, whereas personally the best he could manage was two years ahead. So I think with the, the sort of Prost thing, that was Frank trying to steal a march. And as we've agreed, it was a fairly sensible thing to do. Um, but now it was Ron that was in trouble trying to find engines and Ayrton that was at the beginning of this sort of general negotiation that if you're going to get me for 93, I want more money for a start. So, I mean, it was a brilliant stroke, wasn't it? Saying I'll drive for nothing. Whether he ever would have actually ended up driving for nothing, I'm sure he would have got prize money, blah, blah, blah. So he wouldn't exactly have starved. But it was a very clever move, wasn't it? And now, of course, here he is saying, I won't be driving next year at all. That was like a bombshell as well. It was like a second bombshell, wasn't it? Yeah, I can just sort of imagine Ayrton was uh, maybe in Trafalgar Square uh, around all the pigeons and just constantly launching cats at them when uh, he was trying to do these driver market negotiations. And I'm sure someone associated with Williams would have found a way to give Ayrton some money for 93, even if uh, officially he wasn't getting a salary from Frank, but Senna's dissatisfaction piqued the interest of a man who was always quick to spot an opportunity in the F1 driver market, none other than Eddie Jordan. Jordan was enduring a dreadful second season F1, lumbered with the Yamaha engine it had taken for financial reasons, and its only point of the year would come in the season finale in Australia. But Eddie had come up with a plan that, in his words, held Ayrton's attention long enough to have him slip across the road to see me after a McLaren test session at Silverstone. Jordan offered Senna 25% of his team, which would rise to 49% at the end of their second year together. Eddie explained his logic in his book, saying, I would then only have half of my original holding, but with Senna on board, the valuation of the team would have risen to such an extent that 51% would be worth more than 100% as it stood. Ayrton would have moulded the team around him, made it his own and taken Jordan to a new level with his presence and influence. This would work to everybody's benefit. It was a no-brainer from my point of view. I loved thinking outside the box and this could be a neat solution. 
Eddie says that Senna visited him again late one night at the Jordan factory, and he also ran Jordan back to the airport in Brazil when Eddie was over to negotiate with Rubens Barrichello and his sponsors for 1993. But Ed, looking at Jordan in 93, they didn't fare much better than they had in 92 in terms of points scored. So is there any case that can be made at all that Senna should have taken Eddie up on this offer? Maybe if he had a desperate desire to own a Grand Prix team. I don't recall much evidence of that being a, a big driving force for, for, for Senna, and I doubt driving for or part-owning a team that was still one of F1's smaller operations that was struggling with the Yamaha engine at that time would have appealed enormously. Maybe four or five years down the line, that might have been different different stage in Senna's career if he, if he was still going. So, yeah, I think it would have been a bizarre move for him to make at, at that stage. But evidently, he, he entertained it. Gloriously audacious attempt by Eddie Jordan and a, a very, very good idea. I mean, nothing ventured, nothing gained. And it's just one of those madcap ideas that sort of Eddie Jordan chucked at the wall to see if it stuck. And the fact that quite a few of his madcap ideas stuck was why he was so successful. So it's a it's a brilliant idea. And it's interesting to imagine what it might have changed for, for Jordan. Could he have got Honda back in as an engine supplier? Who could he have attracted to the team? Could it have been like Schumacher going to Ferrari sort of times a million in terms of they could brain drain other teams and then bring all sorts of people in there. And of course, Ayrton Senna would also have had the chance to race a Gary Anderson car, which I imagine would uh, appeal tremendously to uh, one of the regular guests on the <laughs> on this podcast. So yeah, I, I think we have to file this one under a spectacularly enjoyable what if. I can't imagine Senna spent many nights lying awake thinking about taking this offer. I expect it was just, well, this is an interesting idea. Maybe it planted the seed for the future that he might have wanted to get involved in team ownership. But um, his great rival, Alan Prost, didn't find that very fulfilling, did he? So uh, perhaps it was for the better. It's typically Eddie, wasn't it? I don't remember actually that getting a lot of um, publicity. I don't remember that at the time even being a rumour, to be honest. But the other thing that would have interested Ayrton would be Brian Hart. Because Eddie and Brian were very good mates. And they had a lot of respect for each other. Um, and possibly if Ayrton had gone there, they'd have had more finance um, to develop Brian's engine more than uh, he did at the time. But that was an interesting one, wasn't it? It wasn't really going to happen. It's an interesting point on the Hart engine, actually, because Brian Hart was kind of the last genuinely properly successful privateer yeah. Engine manufacturer F1. So with some money, Gary Anderson's always said that with the extra funding, it could have been uh, spectacularly good. So yeah, it, and the point you make about the publicity is interesting because it did cross my mind. Oh, maybe Jordan just did this to kind of drum up interest, especially seeing as he was trying to pull in sponsors for Barrichello. But yeah, looking around from the time, it didn't seem to be something that was put out there. So I think we can take it seriously that it was it was a serious idea from Eddie Jordan. Put it this way: if it was around, I sure as hell missed it as a story for motoring news. But I don't remember it being in autosport either. You'd have to be furious with yourself now if you'd missed it. It doesn't sound that bothered. <laughs> yeah, I'm quite relaxed with myself, Ed. <laughs> but also, I mean, don't don't forget, Ayrton would have seen how good the 191 was, especially at Spa. I mean, that was a superb car that Gary came up with then. The, just very briefly on the Yamaha V12, I remember the record was 59, no, 49 seconds from fire up to blow up 
in Brazil early in the year. I remember going into the garage and it smelt of hot oil. I said, Geez, what, are you, what are you guys doing? And they said they just changed an engine because they just finished a, an overnight engine change and they were warming it up and sort of bah, 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 and then it went bang again after 49 seconds. So certainly the Yamaha wasn't going to be part of Eddie's plans for 93, whatever happened. No, not one of not one of the finer moments of, of Jordan's colourful history. The one thing I do agree with from Eddie, and, and you're right, I, I couldn't in my research, I couldn't find this reported at the time. I've only seen it in Eddie's book. The one thing I do agree with though is his notion that fifty-one owning fifty-one percent of a team with Senna is much more valuable to you than owning a hundred percent of a team on your own. So yeah, great, great work from from Eddie, great opportunism. And uh, what a shame it didn't happen. Imagine if if Senna slash Jordan had lived on for long enough to go up against Alain Prost's team at the end of the decade. But let's get back to 92 and the driver market. One man who didn't fancy waiting around for all these shenanigans at Williams to play out was Gerhard Berger, who decided to turn down an offer to stay at McLaren and instead returned for a second stint at Ferrari, which was understood to be for big money. Berger said at the time, it was very clear to me that I would be the right person for Ferrari. I was getting really tired having to follow the politics of the driver market, which were going on every day. I just hated that, so I made my move first. Matsul has said that he was offered the seat alongside John Alessi at Ferrari for 1993, but his focus during the summer of 92 was working out a deal to stay at Williams to fight Prost on a level playing field. But David, was this? Potentially a smart move from Gerhard to get his future resolved before the Mansell Senna Prost saga shook out, just in case there was a superstar left floating around the driver market without a seat. No, I don't think it was smart. I think it was absolutely brilliant. And I remember we all <laughs> laughed ourselves stupid with him because he was so pleased with himself. Um, as I understand, it was 11 million, but I think it was dollars, not pounds, whereas the Williams Mansell thing had always been discussed in pounds. But 11 million at that time when the driver market was, particularly after Ayrton's drive for free thing, was suddenly um, plunging, was absolutely brilliant gamesmanship by um, Gerhard. And as I understand it, there was more a chance of Nigel joining Gerhard in Jean's place. And you don't want to go too much into this because of Monza, I understand. But, you know, Jean would have then possibly ended up somewhere else. Um so, yeah, Gerhard was, he was really clever to do that. I mean, he wasn't going to be in the Williams thing. I think he was a bit bored at McLaren. And again, he could see we're not going to have Hondas. What's this going to mean? It was a very, very, very good deal that he did for himself there. Typical Gerhard. You know, if, if that offer to Ayrton was typical Eddie, getting the Ferrari deal sorted out, making a fortune doing it was typical Gerhard. Yeah, and Gerhard's very proud of the fact, I think, that he never had a manager or an agent or anything like that. I think his his style of negotiation was, this is what I'll ask for, this is what I'll accept. Let's see if we can end up somewhere in the middle. Berger would, of course, replace Ivan Capelli, who's, who was having a nightmare at Ferrari, and we'll come back to that another time because there's a lot to talk about there. But there was another team on the brink of completing its 1993 driver lineup at this time of year, and that was Sauber which wasn't on the grid yet, but at this point was days away from its first F1 car running for the first time. The team already had Carl Venling assigned up, 
when JJ Leto was set to get the second seat, which had originally been earmarked for Michael Schumacher. We explained the legal battle around that at the end of our Schumacher-Jordan-Benetton episode back in Series 2, so make sure you go back and check that out. Schumacher's case for getting out of the deal Sauber thought it had hinged on Mercedes' involvement in the project. Sauber had run the works Mercedes team in sports cars, which Schumacher had previously driven for, and its initial investigation into an F1 project was for a planned entry with Mercedes. But when Mercedes decided against entering F1 at this stage, Peter Sauber decided to go ahead with his plans anyway. However, when Sauber spoke with longtime Swiss journalist Matthias Brunner for an interview that appeared in Autosport magazine, he revealed that Mercedes was still paying a substantial part of our F1 budget. That led to speculation that Sauber was arriving in F1 on Mercedes' behalf, which Sauber denied. He said, when Mercedes decided against F1, they promised to help us if we did it ourselves. I'm talking about technological and financial help. I can assure you it's not true that Mercedes is planning to do F1 and is sending us ahead. There are no such plans. So, David, looking at the landscape of F1 at the time, the amount of teams we had, this we were coming to the end of the pre-qualifying era. How was the imminent arrival of a team like Sauber being viewed in F1 at this time? Well, it was interesting because um, if you think about Brabham wasn't at Spa, was it? So we were down to 30 cars. Um, and I remember Joe and I say we'd, we're going to talk to 30 odd drivers pretty much in a weekend. It was, it was ridiculous with pre-qualifying, like getting up at five o'clock in the morning to be there at the crack of dawn for six cars trying to fight. Um, interesting, I, I, I believe Peter Sauber about the Mercedes thing. I don't think it was like a Trojan horse for Merck. Um, I think Mercedes had decided that wasn't what they were going to do, but they were going to, I think because they decided not to do it, they decided to, to help Peter. And I worked for Peter um, from 97 to 2005. And I always found him one of the most honest people I encountered in Formula One. So I'm, I'm prepared to believe that. Having said that, I don't think Mercedes, uh, I don't think Sauber was going to be um, poor. It wasn't one of the small teams. It wasn't like EJ or Von Metal or um, Brabham or uh, <laughs> certainly not like Andrea Moda. So, yeah, you know, some of the little teams were really quite concerned about this because it was clearly a very serious operation. And you only had to look at what they'd achieved with Mercedes in sports cars to realize that. So, um, yeah, there were a lot of people in typical Formula One style weren't that struck on the idea of a, a fairly muscular, um, potentially midfield, slightly maybe even upper midfield team coming in. Didn't sit well with everyone. And Sauber did a great job, certainly, in that in that first season and established themselves. Another team closely aligned with a manufacturer in sports car racing was considering going it alone in F1 at this time as well, with rumours in Japan suggesting that Tom's was eyeing up an F1 project, despite Toyota deciding against coming in. Tom's had come close to convincing Toyota to commit to F1 earlier in the year, when it had set up a UK base and enlisted the services of genius designer John Barnard, who'd left Benetton in the middle of 1991. 
Barnard was interested in, interested in the project, believing Toms had put together a decent setup with no F1 capability but good plans, and he liked the idea of setting up his own team of people. Barnard said in his book, The Perfect Car, that he told Toyota it would cost £20 million to set up the team, and that in early meetings his plans were met with general nodding around the table. But he said all the meetings in Japan, the Tom's people were outnumbered five to one by Toyota management. Barnard had started hiring people to work for him, but he had his doubts the project would go anywhere. He said in his book, I just wasn't getting answers from these guys and started to believe they weren't really on board. No one round the table seemed prepared to stick their necks out for the project. We needed the men at the very top to get behind the decision and they weren't there. He was also critical of how Toyota eventually did enter F1 10 years later, saying they jumped in at the wrong place and with the wrong people whose expertise seemed mainly in spending big budgets. What we had asked for a few years before was peanuts compared to what they ended up spending. That's an interesting point, Ed. Would Toyota have been better off entering F1 in the mid-1990s rather than the 2000s? Yeah, certainly in terms of timing, you'd say it would have made sense. Formula One was going through a massive amount of growth at this stage, but it's still earlier in that in that curve. Ten years later when Toyota did come in, it was very, very different in terms of the, the spending involved. And obviously the other question is whether doing it with Toms would have given the, the way the team worked a slightly different character, should we say, if it was kind of a genuine Tom's Toyota project, you know, Tom's a proper racing organisation, and they had a decent amount of autonomy, and it wasn't slowed down by that corporate culture that made things very, very difficult at Toyota, they might have been able to make it work. And having people like John Barnard involved, obviously, was very, very promising. But that, for me, is the big question. On the one hand, you can argue that if Toyota was just a little bit more interested and kind of said, oh, we'll do this, we're not that bothered about it, you go and do it, that could have gone really well. If Toyota had come in all guns blazing and said, right, we're going to really get behind this, I imagine some of the problems, if not all of the problems, that dogged the real Toyota team a decade or more later would have manifested themselves. So another difficult what-if, and I think it would all depend on the exact character of the team. But timing-wise, really, really good time to come into Formula 1. Let's get to the weekend action then. And in free practice, one of the more iconic moments of Ayrton Senna's career took place when he famously stopped his car on track to come to the aid of Ligier's Eric Comas, who'd had a massive accident at Blanchimont. Comas was knocked out in the crash and his car was in the middle of the track. Senna said he was the first car to arrive on the scene and Comas's car hadn't quite come to a rest as he came into view. And as Senna drove past it, he saw the Frenchman's head tip to one side and he could hear that he still had his foot down on the accelerator. Senna stopped immediately, jumped out of his car and ran back to Ligier while other cars were still driving past them under yellow flags to get back to the pits. He found the engine kill switch to stop Comas's right foot blowing the thing up, then supported his head until the medics arrived. Comas was sent to hospital for a brain scan, but remarkably returned to action the following day, failing to get into the race as Saturday qualifying was a washout. Comas later spoke to French TV about what happened, saying he had no memory of the accident because one of his front wheels had come up into the cockpit and knocked me out like a KO in boxing. He was full of gratitude for Senna, saying, at his own risk, he came to my car to stop the engine. Even with yellow flags, the circuit was still very dangerous. After the impact, it seems that there were some leaks of fuel, so the risk was high. 
In a few seconds, it could have exploded. So yes, probably Ayrton Senna saved my life. Now, David, I think everyone has seen these these images. F1 themselves have shared them uh, of Ayrton stopping the car, running back to Ligier. You can see other cars driving past carefully. What was it about Ayrton that meant he was the sort of driver who would make a decision on the spot to just stop, get out and help someone else in trouble? Because he cared. And that might sound funny when you look at some of the moves Ayrton pulled on track, particularly some of the things he did with Alain in 93. But Ayrton and Prof were very close. And I, I think this whole um, Eric Kermas Ayrton Senna thing absolutely fascinates me. And I had a, a very long conversation with Eric for the book Echoes of Imola. <clears throat> and Ayrton stopped because he could, A, as you say, hear the engine, and B, see the guy was in trouble. And exactly what um, Eric said to me after Imola 94, and I'll quote it if you like, he said, especially in this moment, I remember when I had my big crash in practice for the Belgian Grand Prix in 1992 when Ayrton came to stop my engine when I was unconscious. And then he said he'd looked at the film and he said, I was remembering well. Um, I was very fond of him. And I would always think of him from time to time as if the bond um, will never be broken. I remember him well. When I crashed at Spa, he was not the first one on the scene. Many cars passed, including my own teammate, but only Ayrton stopped. And if you watch um, the Ayrton Senna movie right at the end, you can actually see that. I don't think there was any particular love loss between um, Eric and Thierry Bootsen, but it was Ayrton who stopped and he did, as Prof said, he did everything right. Everything that we'd asked, we'd discussed, he'd done right, like sporting his head and all that sort of thing. And Eric was knocked out for 12 minutes because he went off at Blanchimont in the wet. Um, a lot of dirt was getting thrown up on the exit there and he he slid into the end of the tire wall sideways, got a really good whack. Um, being unconscious for 12 minutes is such quite a hefty sort of thing. And I think it was a decision actually that it wasn't just the, the weather on Saturday. The decision was, no, you, you can't really race. And then just very briefly, um, as we remember from Imola, he stopped him at the end of the first lap. And then LaRousse led him out of the, the pits and none of them they were so busy working on the car none of them realized quite how serious everything was out on the track and for whatever reason nobody ever understood why they let eric out of the pits and then he came slamming around the um, tamborello nearly hit the ambulance um saw the helicopter and then saw him on the grass and actually stopped virtually right alongside him and then when eric was taken back in the car he could obviously he and JJ, who was in the pits watching on TV, were the two drivers who realised how serious things were. And for Eric, he said it just completely destroyed him. And when he got in the car to be driven back, Ayrton's helmet was on the seat alongside him. I always liked the fact that there was such a strong bond between those two. And I felt so desperately sorry for Eric that he had to go through that horrible trauma um, with the man that he respected so much. And that the strength of that went back to Spa 
92. And they discussed um, safety there. And then Ayrton had agreed that he would call Eric um, shortly after Imola. They were going to have a get together again about safety because they were both pretty concerned about it from the various reasons by 1994. And of course, by then it was too late. Yeah, it's incredible how that story kind of rounded itself off in such unfortunate circumstances, but an incredible gesture from from Ayrton. As you said there, Professor Sid Watkins said what he did was of genuine help. It wasn't it wasn't just Ayrton trying to look like uh, he wanted to be helpful or, or making a statement or anything like that. Senna was the centre of attention at the start of the race as well, as he took the lead from Mansell off the line with, of course, at Spa, rain in the air. The rain started to get heavier at the beginning of the race around the final part of the lap, and Mansell passed Senna at Blanchiment, of all places, on slicks to retake the lead. Now, Ed, I know you've watched this race back. Given this is a pass in damp conditions at what was then one of F1's most terrifying corners, as we've just discussed with the Comas incident, and it's on Ayrton Senna in, in, in these conditions, a, a known master in the damp and in the wet. Does that make this one of F1's forgotten great overtakes, or is it just a sign of what we talked about earlier, of how supreme the Williams FW14B was in 1992. Yeah, you definitely can't overlook the fact that the Williams was simply the better car by some margin, had the grunt up the hill and the, the drag to Blanchimont. But at the same time, that part of the track was pretty damp on that first lap. If you watch the footage, there's a reasonable amount of spray being kicked up. It's not a fully wet track, obviously, and they were, they were still on slicks, but soon to move on to wets. But Mansell could easily have waited, but yeah, he went for the courageous some might say high risk uh move on the inside and it was it was a proper move he launched on sort of the way into the corner required Senna to cooperate and as we know if things go wrong at Blanchimont they go wrong in quite a big way as uh, Eric Gomez had shown a, a couple of days earlier so I think the fact that Patrese then followed him through fairly shortly afterwards not at Blanchimont but I think that shows kind of where the McLaren with Senna in it was even in those damp conditions he didn't really have much of a chance but yeah, it required some real courage from Mansell to, to make it happen where he did. I'm not sure a forgotten great overtake, but maybe a forgotten very good overtake, let's put it that way, and one that's utterly, typically Mansell. It's like, I'm not going to wait for the bus stop. I'm going through here, no matter how how much lunacy may be involved in, in making this move. Credit to them both for making that that move work. Yeah, drivers, drivers getting overtaken don't get enough credit, I think, especially in the modern era. It's considered a sin if you give up the corner, but that's a rant for another time. On lap three, Mansell and Alacy were the first cars to pit for wets, and Alacy jumped Mansell during these stops. That left Patrese out in the lead in the second Williams, and he stayed out for another three laps because of a misunderstanding over the radio. Senna, though, stayed out until lap 14, gambling on the weather changing again so that his slicks would come back into their prime. Senna said, The car was just about controllable, and I thought I might as well stay out. If it dried, I would be in good shape. I knew it was my only chance. Now, David, in your report for Motorsport magazine at the time, you called Senna's driving in these early laps a virtuoso performance in the dire conditions. Was this gamble the sort of thing very few drivers would have even been capable of trying in the first place? No, because you know, Michael did that in 95, didn't he, at Spa as well. But um, I think I just felt comfortable. And what was interesting was when he changed 
um, tyres again later in the race. He actually, I think he changed on lap 30 and then he spun on lap 31. And he was a little bit, you know, he was chasing Darquini for a while. Everyone was thinking, what? <laughs> you know, what's happening? And then suddenly he sort of got on it. But undoubtedly it was a gamble that didn't pay off because, of course, he only finished fifth and wasn't really thereafter in with a chance of victory. But, um, I mean, it was awesome to watch, as you would expect. And I think it was one of those things where he just felt comfortable with what he was doing and hoped the weather would improve. And, of course, it didn't. I mean, it didn't, as I recall, it didn't drive out, dry out until properly until like lap 28 it began to. But by 30, 31, other people were coming in to go back to, to slicks. So it was one of those gambles that didn't come off this time. Now, before Senna slipped into the clutches of the wet tyre runners as they rejoined and caught him back up, Lacey was leading the chasing pack. But as he defended from Mansell at the start of lap eight, he got out of shape on the brakes for Lasource, the first hairpin. And in weaving around, he ended up getting clipped by the Williams, which damaged Alacy's left rear wheel and put him out on the spot. Each driver blamed the other for this, of course, with Alacy saying, I never thought Mansell would try to pass on the outside of a corner where there is only one line. And Mansell shrugged that Alacy's driving was just what he does. So, Ed, uh, you can analyse this one for us. What did you make of this incident? Well, John Lacey could be inspired and infuriating in equal measure, couldn't he, in Formula One? This is very much in the infuriating camp, a bizarre bit of driving. Because <laughs> as they're coming down towards the right-hand hairpin, the source hairpin, the two of them are kind of on the inside coming towards the corner. Lacey moves towards the outside, and then he moves back towards the inside, and Mansell, who was on the inside, thinks, well, I'll go to the outside then. Mansell at this time will be thinking, I'll, I'll get... I'll take a less tight turn into the corner. I'll get the traction and I might be able to pass him on the way out. But then Lacey sort of realises where Mansell's gone and, and he makes that sudden move. He's already on the brakes. There's a little snap as he does it. And he just squeezes Mansell. Mansell's not really attempting to overtake. He's just there perfectly legitimately. And he doesn't have much of an overlap even at that at that stage. So it's not like he's contesting the corner. They're not even in the corner at this point. Yeah, and Lacey just, just hits him. So, yeah, you've got to be firmly in the Mansell camp. I'd urge anybody listening to this to uh, to refresh their memory and have a look at the, the footage. You can find it uh, online. It, it shows you it was just a, a very bad bit of judgment from Lacey. The only thing I'll say in John Lacey's defence is he was in a dog of a car. That Ferrari was one of the worst Ferraris they ever produced in terms of its deficits. He probably saw that in the wet conditions he had a bit of a chance of doing something, so he could throw caution to the wind. But <laughs> I think uh, he kind of the wires crossed in the brain in the uh, in the desperation to stay ahead in in that moment. So yeah, I don't think you can really justify that on a Lacey's part. It's quite funny in the post race press conference, Mansell was asked about it, and he sort of said, "Oh, you got that on film? Did you pleased about that?" Because he was just delighted that uh, it had been seen how how silly a move it was from from Lacey so yeah that's uh 100% in Lacey's court I would say and uh one of the more bizarre bits of driving from his very storied career that was the twin floor car wasn't it yeah the the, the Mijo car remember in Alton Hebdo had a cartoon with the drivers sort of shoveling coal that was kept in between the two floors it was it was just a dreadful um, car, wasn't it? I think I, I think I did. It was pretty, but it was awful. I think I I rated that as the worst ever Ferrari 
wasn't the lowest in the, oh, God, in the no, there's, wasn't the, there's some worse ones than that well there were a few sort of worse you know you think about the 1980 car but obviously that was still the op that was the the old car effectively wasn't 73 it so, cars 73 cars bad but in terms of the, the in terms of the deficit to the front and just the general shambles of it given what they tried to do it, it but you're right Ferrari has no lack of you can have as many contenders for a worst Ferrari as you can uh, best Ferrari but uh, yeah I, sorry I've digressed there by bringing uh, 1980 into it but to be fair to Nigel as well I mean he was Nigel was a clean driver I mean Nigel would not take people off deliberately yeah and it would have made no sense to him to put himself in that in that position he was in a he was in the completely logical place and in fact by moving to the outside he'd kind of pulled out of the move because he could have tried to squeeze up the inside but he took the sensible course of action it's just Alacy was going one way then the other then the other three moves I think you can see from Alacy there I think today he, he'd unquestionably get a penalty for that yeah I think to describe Jean as out of control on the way into that corner would be an understatement but we've also had a little preview there I think we'll have to do Ferrari's worst cars at some point and have David and Ed back on to to debate it and yes yeah, there's a competitive field there uh, <laughs> to work out who'd who'd be top of the list. So after all these early shenanigans, the race settled down into the usual 1992 pattern of Mansell leading Patrese out front, but it was to come alive again on lap 30 when Schumacher slid off the road from third place at Stavolo and scrambled through the grass before rejoining. This cost him a place to his Benetton teammate Martin Brundle, and this moment changed both of their races. When Schumacher saw the state of Brundle's worn rear tyres, he decided to pit immediately for slicks. Getting ahead of and getting ahead of Schumacher on track meant made Brundle change his mind about coming in on that lap. Schumacher said seeing Brundle's tyres made his off a good situation, while Brundle said, I was in two minds and it cost me the race. Well, let's have a quick chat about Brundle. David mentioned him at the start of the show because it was around this time that rumours first emerged he was going to lose his Benetton drive to Patrese for 93. And Martin said by the time he got to the next race at Monza, he knew he was out of a seat. Martin has said many times since 1992 that in the years that followed, Flavio Briatore constantly told him it was a mistake to replace him for 93. And he said Briatore's explanation was that he hadn't realised how good Michael Schumacher was. Now, David, we can talk about the lost win as well. I'm very interested to get your perspective on that because Martin got stuck behind an ailing Patrese after these pit stops and finished 46 seconds adrift of Schumacher. So quite how we work out his claims that pitting one lap earlier have cost him the win. We'll come to that in a moment. But looking beyond that briefly, did Martin deserve to keep that drive at Benetton for longer than just the one season that he got? Yeah, no question. I mean... Um... You've obviously guessed that I cite Canada as the other race, Canada 92, where Martin should have had a chance to win and the differential bolts sheared, which <laughs> that's probably the only time in Benetton history that ever happened. Um, yes, I think he should have. I mean, I remember talking to Martin for the Imola book as well, and it was fascinating because in the pits in 92, he and Jean had a another clash they kept there was something about them it was like lewis and felipe they just seemed to have this magnetism for each other at the beginning of the year and martin was struggling with a a difficult car you know a typical pointy michael car and um martin sort of went up in the air and banged down and, and told me that he went back to the hotel and just cried his eyes out 
um, and felt so utterly down. And then he sort of got his head together and thought, right, and then went back um, for the race at Imola. And from then on, he was actually pretty strong and he was going well in Canada. He was running with Michael at Spa, which was interesting because he qualified a fair chunk behind him. And of course, he would then go on to finish second at Monza ahead of Michael. Um, he'd been running right behind him in Hungary and had tapped his rear wing. And I remember Nigel Roebuck and I were watching on the outside in um, uh, Hungara ring on the outside of the track and saw the incident when Michael's wing flew off on the pit straight. So, yeah, I think Martin was doing an impressive job, to be honest. The interesting thing at Spa is it wasn't just, number one, Michael had got out of shape at La Source on lap 29. Then he went off at Stavolo and very nearly hit the barrier. And the deal was, whichever driver was running second on lap 30 would make the pit stop because they checked it out with Benetton. It wasn't just um, that they happened to, you know, one decided to stop and the other didn't. And Michael, yes, he saw Martin's tyres were blistered and by then he was the second driver. So he came in and that's why Martin didn't. And if I can just quote, so Michael says, suddenly my luck was in. When I went off at Stavala, I ran wide and missed the apex. I turned in too late and turned wide, and I was lucky not to hit the barrier. Martin passed me. I could see his tyres were blistered, so I decided to go in immediately. I came in for dry tyres at the perfect moment. The opportunity was there to win the race, and I went for it. Whereas Martin then came in the following lap, was unsighted, got a bit skew-whiff in his pit, and also was a bit slow getting out. And that's when he fell behind Ricardo, and hence the delay, because by then the conditions were at their best to change tyres on lap 30. So it was a lot closer than it appeared to be by the finish when, as you said, he was 46 seconds behind. And had Martin been the one to come in and pit then, I think he'd have been the one to benefit, because Michael would have had to do another full lap before he came in. That's, you know, I remember at the time sort of thinking, well, okay, you know, nobody could nobody could foresee what that meant for Michael, could we? And I mean, I actually remember writing something at the end of that, saying the third youngest Grand Prix driver, like Bruce McLaren and Emerson Fittipaldi, Schumacher savored every moment of his triumph. The German fans have waited a long time for a Formula One victory since Jochen Mass in 1975. He said, "I give this victory to them," and then I said, "And to the sport, it needed it." And at the time, you know, we all thought, this is fantastic, this young kid who was always so happy when subsequently when he won races. It was great. It's always great to see a driver win for the first time. And it was great to see Michael win there a year after his fantastic debut. But at the same time, I, I did feel sorry for Martin because he would have deserved to win there. Just one quick thing to add, just to underline what David said about Brundle's season. He ended up with 71.7% of Schumacher's points that year, which is the highest tally over his time as teammate to Schumacher of any driver in Schumacher's main F1 career. Obviously, Rosberg at Mercedes is way ahead of Schumacher, so he's, he's the kind of number one in that regard. Yes, this was a young Michael Schumacher in his first full season, but 
Brundle was kind of held up as the, the gold standard of Schumacher teammates for quite a few years because all those that followed Petrazzi, Verstappen, Leto, Herbert couldn't quite get to that that same level. So yeah, the, the quality of Brundle in '92. Sometimes these things become cliches, and I almost feel that it, that the fact it's restated, people forget just how well he he did do. Yeah. He, couldn't qualify particularly well compared to Schumacher, but formidable race driver. And even early in the race at Spa, he's following Senna when they stay out for, well, Brundle stays out for one lap more than a few of the others. Senna obviously keeps going, but he's right there with Senna on slicks in, in the wet in that early phase of the race. And there's a point later on when Schumacher and Brundle are sort of trying to pass Senna almost at the same time when they're coming through, um, having changed tyres. So yeah, he, he was definitely quick that day. Back to the race and Mansell pitted three laps after Schumacher for slicks and Nigel said he'd wanted to come in sooner but the team asked him to stay out seemingly to let Patrese pit first but that delay meant Mansell rejoined 5.7 seconds behind Schumacher and for the first few laps he couldn't make big inroads on the Benetton. The gap came down to 5.2 then 4.7 then went back up to 5.3, but then on lap 38, Mansell took 2.3 seconds out of Schumacher and was now just three seconds off the lead with six laps to go. It was shaping up to be a thrilling finish, but next time around, Mansell had lost 12 seconds with what sounded like a misfire, and the following lap, he lost nearly 10, so suddenly he was 25 off the lead and Schumacher had that first win in the bag. Mansell said afterwards the entire left-hand side of the exhaust system fell off the car, although there was some debate after the race about if he'd suffered an exhaust problem or an electrical problem. And three laps from the end, Patrese suffered the same fate, just as he was closing in on Mansell for second. So Ed, if Mansell hadn't suffered whatever that problem was, were we shaping up for a grandstand finish or would it have been just another example from that season of a Williams breezing past an inferior car on route to victory. Well, there's a lot of things in Mansell's favour. The Williams was unquestionably the quicker car. Mansell had the drivers' championship sewn up. The constructors' championship wasn't a formality in terms of numbers at this stage, but they were going to win it anyway. So there was no real pressure on to be careful or anything. So Mansell could go for it. But Schumacher had a first Grand Prix win to fight for, and he's Michael Schumacher. So it might not have been realised at the time quite how good he was. People knew he was very good, but obviously this is Michael Schumacher we're talking about. And the caveat we have to add to the idea that Mansell would have caught and passed him easily is, yeah, Mansell closed to within, I think it was three seconds, was it lap 38 was when he got down to that gap before he had his problem. But Schumacher on the lap that Mansell first started to slow, I think went even quicker than Mansell had gone. They were, they were sort of setting lap records. So Schumacher had responded. So it then becomes a question of, well, what more was there for Mansell? I think fundamentally there's more in a Williams FW14B than a Benetton B192, but relatively close to the end of the race, I think it could have been really interesting, and I think Schumacher would have been willing to really lay it on the line to try and stay ahead. It could have been, as you say, that grandstand finish. We could have had the last few laps a proper full-on battle between them, but it could also have been one of those ones where if Mansell could have just chipped away those next couple of seconds and got properly into his toe then it probably could have been one of those easier passes. So maybe it's one of those things where you just need to keep just that tiny bit of cushion to stay ahead. It'd been fascinating if it had happened. And on the one hand, you think, well, if Mansell come through and won, it would have robbed us of this brilliant story of Schumacher's first win. But it could have been even better. It could have been Schumacher gets his first win holding off Mansell in a, in a wheel-to-wheel fight at the end. So another another what-if for this one. And it's quite sort of 
50-50, although part of me wants to say, yeah, Mansell would have done it, but I don't think the way the race was shaping up in those few laps before the problem gives you enough to say 100% he would have done. He did get fastest lap, didn't he, Michael? On lap 39. Yeah, that would have been the yeah, the, the response to Mansell's pace. So that's yeah, sort of showed after that he didn't need to go quickly again, did he? So there was there was pace in the Schumacher-Benetton combination and we know Schumacher felt really good that day. Obviously, Spa was a special circuit for him after his debut the year before. So, yeah, maybe maybe this would have been a touch of magic from from Schumacher, and it would be up there with some of the some of the more famous wins of his. This one's famous because it's his first win. But if Mansell had been there to the end, maybe this one would be right up there as one of his great wins. I you did say that he was fourteen hundred revs down by the time this. He said it was an exhaust problem. Um, Williams said he was on Ricardo's as well, so but I'm sure the whole exhaust fell off was a slight exaggeration. <laughs> yeah, and there's <laughs> the question of how whether that that problem sort of phased in, whether that pace before the complete drop off was a little bit tempered already. So yeah, yeah, that that's just one of the many imponderables about this one. Another fun what if though. Yeah, I, I'm not aware of anybody. Um, finding the entire left-hand bank of Mansell's exhaust system on the circuit after. I wasn't a Jean-Paul Sarty, but <laughs> 66 job, was it? But it's it's the law of Grand Prix driver exaggerations, isn't it? It's like today, if they do a long stint on tyres at the end, they're always one corner or one lap away from a, a tyre failure, or if we'd done another lap, the engine would have failed and all this sort of thing. It's uh, it's just that that little bit of hyperbole, isn't there, that, uh, that drivers liked. But that was actually quite funny that year, because I forget where it was, but there was that thing where Nigel had won, and it was, oh, I'm collapsing kind of thing. And I do remember one particular race where Patrick was so angry <laughs> that he was sort of saying how hard it was and everything else. And you just think, you know, I've just designed with Adrian Newey this fantastic car that's dominating everything. And this guy's just won it by 10 laps. He's still saying how much he had to fight for it. Um, yeah, I mean, that's just exaggeration, isn't it? From That was Nigel. Yeah, I don't think there'll ever be anyone better than Nigel uh, uh, pulling those sort of stunts. But obviously, Nigel was out of the equation. Now, I'm very disappointed that I asked Ed a hypothetical question about a race from 30 years ago, and he sat on the fence. But Michael Schumacher got the job done, and one year on from making his F1 debut for Jordan at this very track, he took the first of 91 F1 victories. Afterwards, Michael said, it's so difficult to describe this feeling. I had water in my eyes for the first time at Hockenheim where I got on the podium, but I really cried today. I can't describe it. It's something crazy. I feel this is a victory we really deserved. The whole weekend, I felt that we are quite good. I don't know why, but when I was in the motorhome today, I thought I am able to win this race. Unbelievable. Now, David, we've talked a bit already about some of the things you wrote around this victory. And you said at the time, this felt like one of those moments where you are watching history in the making. And Nigel Roebuck said, Schumacher always had the look of a man for whom it was only a matter of time. And this, we may be sure, was the first of many. It's always very easy for us to look back at these moments with hindsight and understand the significance of this day. But when you were there, the likes of you and Nigel Roebuck are writing these reports and saying these things at the time. What is it about a moment like this that gives you that feeling there and then? 
I think it was just that we were brilliant, Glenn, to be honest. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's funny, isn't it? It's like, you know, you watched Ayrton in Formula 3 and he didn't have to be smart to say this guy's going to be world champion. And everyone says that about goodness knows how many different people. But I just always really felt that with Ayrton. And with Michael, I mean, it's all those things that you look at, like the year before when De Cesaris was talking about the Jordan being a bit edgy through Blanchimont in fifth. And Michael was sort of sat quietly in the back of the briefing and saying, um, it's more stable if you do it flat in sixth. And little things like that. And Gary sort of going, whoa. You know, and looking at the guy and thinking, yeah, he's not being boastful. But Michael just had that, you know, we all know when he first tested at Silverstone how fast he was. And they, they got in, um, they got him to come in and told him to slow down. And he sort of went, well, and you saw all the way through that 12-month period what Michael was like and how sort of, the calmness he had, and obviously he was very, very quick. He was always a very good qualifier. And he just had that sort of mien about him, the way he carried himself. I didn't think he was very arrogant back then, but he just had that kind of calmness and confidence about him. And you looked at him and he thought, yeah, I mean, I didn't think he'd go on to win seven titles in 91 races then. He'd never do in those situations. But it was not a surprise when he won his first Grand Prix, let's put it that way. And he did. He was lucky um, to go off at Stavolo. But then, as Ed said, he was doing a fantastic job once he got in the lead. And he might have got in the lead slightly through decent circumstances, but that's not a crime. And he absolutely made the most of it. And like I said, when when you saw him on the, the podium and everything, you just thought, yeah. This this guy's doing what he was meant to do. Let's finish with a bizarre little story to round this episode off. As well, Schumacher and I, this, I'm, this is really what happened. Schumacher cycled off with the winner's trophy to the local hotel his parents were staying at. Imagine him doing that a few years later in the pomp of his Ferrari success. Team boss Flavio Briatore at Benetton congratulated Ross Braun on his first victory with the team. Ross tells this story in his book, Total Competition, written with Adam Parr, and he says what happened next taught him a lesson about management. Ross said, Flavio called me into his office and said, Ross, you have done a really good job. I'm really pleased we won it. I want to give you a little bonus. I said, that's okay. It's not in my contract. Flavio gave me a swatch. And I said, that is a little bonus. He said, well, someone gave it to me and it wasn't for me and I thought you might enjoy it. In a way, that was a really valuable lesson to me, the emotions I felt about that. It would have been far better to have done nothing, first of all. Secondly, you can do things that don't cost a lot of money that people really value. And he did the worst thing of all. The old adage of treat people how you want to be treated yourself is still a very strong principle of mine. Ed, is that just a little insight into how Briatore wasn't quite wired up the same as the people who'd come up through a motorsport background into F1? It's just really odd, isn't it? I think, yeah, he wasn't 
quite in the motorsport mindset, but I almost feel this isn't even motorsport mindset. It's it's a bit, oh, you've done something well. I'm Here's a bit of tat that I don't want. <laughs> and you can have it. I mean, that's how he framed it, didn't he? Yeah, swatches were very popular at that time. They were sort of early 90s. These were the kind of slightly garishly coloured ones, weren't they? They were, they were sort of not the sort of high-end classy watches that you might normally uh, uh, associate with it. I think swatch do that. I'm dangerously stro- uh, straying into talking about watches here, which is something I know next to nothing about. But yeah. I think the thing is, it's just Briatore not quite realizing how that would have sounded. You know what, Briat? Bri- no, I, I think I think it's probably not caring how it sounds. Yeah, but uh, I mean, I think I think Ross did that, well. But also, there. just a little bit of an offhand. Yeah, I think Ross did well to get a swatch because I remember Johnny telling me when he won at uh, uh, Monza when he saved the bacon for Benetton at Monza in '95, and they were in the motorhome, and he said, "Flavio just looked at me and sneered, <laughs> didn't say a word." So some people are different, aren't they? Wired differently is quite a good expression, I think. Yeah, that's that's certainly Flavio Briatore all, all over. And such an interesting character, actually. Maybe we'll talk about him in more depth one day on another Bring Back V10s. But there's so much about him that doesn't make sense as an F1 team boss. But those who work for him say that actually he was a pretty good team boss. Although I do remember Pat Simmons saying he was good as long as he stayed out of the uh, the technical stuff and didn't get too involved in He was good. Good delegator, to be fair. Exactly. I'll tell you the story if we do another podcast and you invite me. I'll tell you the story about when we visited his flat in London in 1993. That's laying down a great marker, isn't it? It's get get to the end of uh, of the uh, of the podcast and you're laying down your demand to return. I like that. A bit of a teaser. A request. A request. I think that request <laughs> should definitely be uh, be listened to. Yep, I'm all for that. We will we will leave it there for Spa 1992. A significant day in F1 history, and without doubt, one of the most entertaining races of that season that was dominated by Mansell and Williams. But David, thank you so much for making your first appearance on the show and for already booking in your second. Much like Schumacher in 92, I hope this is the first of many, although we might not hold you to 91 appearances in total. God, I hope not. I don't think I'll be around that long, mate. (laughs) And, uh, And of course, thanks to Ed as well. Remember to get your questions in for our series finale, where you can ask us anything about F1's V10 era using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter or by emailing BringBackV10s at the-race.com. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and you think we deserve a five-star review, we'd love to hear from you. Next time, we're breaking our own rules and deserting the V10 era to visit revisit the action-packed 2008 Canadian Grand Prix, the race famous for being Robert Kubica's only F1 victory. 